Well, good morning, Keith. How are you good today? <laughs> um, so, uh, so good to be, be with you here today. Um, doing the Hollywood Breaks thing again. Um, yeah, very exciting. I, uh, I just want to share with the audience, it's uh, welcome to our, our show today, our podcast, our video cast, whatever we're calling these things nowadays. I feel like in the pandemic, we're changing the name of this format because everyone's doing it and we're not, it doesn't feel like we're casting as much anymore as we're consuming. So yes, we call it like the web content or whatever. Um, this is Hollywood Breaks and this is where we like to share our insights of what we've captured in the industry, mostly picking the, the ideas and thoughts off of Keith's um, connections throughout the industry. Uh, he and I love to banter as we develop our own content. And in that content game, it's always good to stay connected, understand the pivot, and keep ourselves strong in mind. So uh, we wanted to share some of those thoughts with you. So I'm Tim Thompson, good to be with you today. And this is my colleague, Keith. Keith, Hello. introduce yourself. Tell us uh, Great to are. be here, happy to be here. Love talking about the industry. I'm glad that we uh, chose a business that never is boring, put it lightly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've been in this industry for 15 plus years and I, like I said it never gets boring there's always something exciting happening and you know I'm a gr I love being a storyteller and that's really what drives my passion and that's why I think this industry is so great um, despite all the ups and downs that has gone through in the last few months hard to believe I'm saying that not years but again I think it's great and you know just love talking to all the conversations I have with colleagues of mine in this business and you know, what we think is coming down the pike and sharing that, you know, knowledge with you guys, with you all. Yeah, I really do feel like we're, we're kind of a lucky duo in a way. Um, mm -hmm. The connections that we have, just normal conversations that we have, and to be able to dive into some of those thoughts, um, we have our ear to the ground in, in such a way. So uh, I'm actually kind of curious um, about some of the articles I've read this week, and mm -hmm. I want to get your thought on some of this too. Yeah. Um, the big one that I've read this week was um, this Disney Plus article. So Disney Plus, you know, launches, hits their five-year goal, I think, within five months at $60 million for mm -hmm. that platform. Um, they have other entities as well. They have Hulu Plus, ESPN, and then a whole bunch of syndicate um, programs as well through the acquisition of Fox. Um, so they're clearly set up for um, so much in the content game and the distribution game. But if you ask me, pivoting off of a conversation from last week, they really are stuck in like that distribution dilemma. Um, yeah. It's hard to know like where the eyeballs are going to go. Even with all that market share, it feels to me like they're still shifting things around and, and kind of guessing where the eyeballs are gonna hit. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it, it's definitely very interesting that you know, when they pulled Mulan off the schedule, there was a lot of guessing about, well, are they just going to wait to see what happens with Tenet, which as we talked last week is, in my mind, the canary in the coal mine in terms of what the theatrical experience and the distribution experience is going to be over the course of the next three or four months until the end of the year. Um, and I think now that they've decided to not only put it on Disney Plus, but charge a premium for it, which I believe the price is like 30 bucks, they're clearly looking for a way to again, still monetize the content, but at the same time, they don't really want to sit back and wait. They really think the time is now. Um, you know, you got a lot of families that are desperate for content right now. I mean, there's only so many times you can watch Snow White and Cinderella <laughs> before you really start to feel like you need 
some new content. And I think from a pricing standpoint, the fact that they chose you know, $30, I think for an average family of four, that's actually a major discount because most you go out and hire a babysitter, stand in the popcorn line, buy the four bags of popcorn, drinks, you're looking at an easy $100 right there. And I think for Disney, the thought process is, well, listen, we can charge $30 for this product, which already has a brand built in, given the fact that it's based on the original animated property. So I think their, their, their goal here is to, again, attract the eyeballs, but at the same time, you know, be able to monetize in a way that can sort of somewhat mitigate the huge losses that they face with the closing of the parks. and Yeah, the... the uh it's kind of like an inflated DVD price, right? $30. I think we used to pay 20 bucks for DVD or whatever, but of course that was the second run. The DVD after theatrical, they made all their money back. Then they go to DVD, get a second market to go direct to video. (laughs) Like they really are just, they just skipped all distribution. When direct to video, they're paying, I mean, obviously 30 bucks, no distribution cost because they own the platform or whatever, yeah. whatever. And we're paying a subscription for Disney Plus on top of the 30 bucks, yeah. which feels like a little bit of a cable model there, if you ask me. Yeah. You pay for the cable service and then pay for the pay-per-view. Um, but I, I'll go back to when the, the first thing you say is like, they're actually, if you ask me, they're out of content. I mean, Disney Plus at 60 million subscribers did not have that much depth to keep people interested. Mm-hmm. Um, this feels like they're really just, I mean, hopefully they have a plan, but I feel like they're just burning um, all, yeah. the, all the resources they had, maybe because they didn't expect to grow this fast. They, they start off yeah. kind of shallow. Yeah, I think they, well, I mean, it's, it's the uh, never ending debate, and this may be another topic we can discuss on another podcast, but if you look at all the streamers, they all have their strengths. You know, Netflix, of course, is well ahead in the production game. Um, you know, the, the argument is, well, do you have more original content or do you have library? Now, Disney obviously went with the library, uh, philosophy given the depth of their library and the popularity of their library, especially some of the older animation titles that sort of call a nostalgia to the parents as well as allow them to introduce it to their kids. As well as the Fox depth, the television. Yeah, the Fox depth and, you know, all, you know, the classic action movies, Die Hard, Predator, or what have you, again, sort of they can tap all that. But again, if you think about, you can only lay your loyals on that for so long, because if you look at Disney Plus in general, what have they had other than Mandalorian? Yeah. Nothing, really. They haven't had anything that's sort of popped and been like a pop culture uh, sort of uh, sensation, which is something that Netflix is quite good at. Um, You know, this past week, they had, I think, uh, The Kissing Booth 2 or something like that, which was which is a hit and everybody on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok were talking about it. And, you know, I think that's Disney Plus's challenge to your point, Tim, that they don't really have a lot of original content. And I think because they grew so quickly and they weren't anticipating to hit their numbers this fast, they're realizing now that we need content, like we need new content. And they're also fronting the fact that their VP of content Agnes Chu just left this past week to, and she's going to Condé Nast. So now they have sort of a hole in there that Ricky Strauss, who's the president of Disney Plus, is going to have to fill and figure out, well, we need to churn a lot of this. We need to get content on the platform because at a certain point, because people have been home so long, yeah. they're going to want something other than just library titles. We've been eating through it. And there's something... Yeah. Um, to go to the idea of nostalgia, there's something about consuming the content, which is totally great. But if you're in a movie theater, think about the time it takes 
mm-hmm. to uh, load up your kids. I mean, you, the anticipation. You, you watch yeah. six trailers before the time it gets there. You load up your kids in the car. It takes you time to get there. The movie experience is a couple hours. You drive yourself home. You burn four hours watching yeah. a, a two-hour, an hour-and-a-half piece of, piece of film. Here, like, in two hours, you could almost burn six hours worth of, worth of uh, content because you could skip through, move things around. You could use binge-watch something. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I mean, to their strength, they obviously have a very solid foundation, Star Wars, Marvel, Pixar. Uh, those are evergreen items no matter what. And there will always be new kids on the planet. So there will always be kids falling in love with these these yeah. uh, these iconic ideas uh, again. But uh, they're really going to have to run for the play. And I have a feeling they're going to lose the Disney standard a little bit in making some of that content. More, probably more like Disney television shows um, than it will look like Disney film when uh, when some of this content finally launches. Yeah, I think that that is another challenge they have. They're one of the only studios, well, I, I would argue they're the only studio really that has a brand. And that has been a blessing and a curse for them in a lot of ways. Because for example, you look at the other streamers like Apple TV Plus, Peacock, they only have brands. So there's no expectation that if some R-rated film is thrown up on the platform, that, oh my goodness, this is so contra Peacock's brand or contra Apple TV Plus's brand. Um, so I think that's something that they definitely have to take in consideration. That being said, they do also have Hulu, which can sort of serve as the adult side of the entertainment equation. So, but again, you know, Disney is such a hefty brand that if you've got all these people on Disney plus, you're going to start having creators and filmmakers being like, well, wait a minute, if Hulu only has this many people, why can't I be on Disney plus? as well and just attract me to as many pieces of the audience because in the theatrical experience that's basically what they they're they have access to as many people in the audience as they want um barring obviously the ratings and whether or not it's an r-rated film or whatnot but you can advertise to an entire audience whereas with disney it's sort of like there's buckets you have disney the disney plus audience which is obviously family oriented you have the hulu audience so it sort of creates that challenge of like, okay, well, the filmmaker comes to us with an idea and they want to be broad, you know, as broad as possible. Like, for example, like Netflix, which is as you have access to everybody. That's another challenge I think Disney's going to face as well in terms of, you know, getting the content and content makers to, you know, want to come to the, the doorstep and you know, have access to the broadest audience possible. Yeah, let's talk about some of the uh, challenges that come up against in the promotion of this. So um, we'll, we can get a broader stroke here too, but obviously yeah. the Disney Plus, Hulu, ESPN, that whole growth um, area for Disney is very great. There, but um, part of the article I read is they're also talking about shuttering 20 traditional channels, right? Mostly in Asia Pacific and, and Eastern Europe kind of uh, are where the largest cutbacks are gonna have to take place. Um, but the idea of like, they're actually walking away from some of the uh, traditional television models to double down on, on these items here. Very interesting, but what happens is, is like you start losing the passive viewer. Uh, the passive viewer can't watch uh, television and aren't watching from show to show and skipping um, from shows that way. We're all kind of pressing the button, choosing our items and moving on. Um, we, have a, we have an issue when, when it comes to then promotion space. Uh, promotion space, commercial space. Um, and as we know, you can feel the agencies are kind of falling apart too because of the, all that missing um, airtime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's definitely one of those things where, 
you have to look at it and say, okay, to your, I think it's a great point in terms of like, you're losing a lot of the shuffle audience. And I think a lot of promo time, because it, it, that I think is a lot of the challenge in terms of where the shift is happening. Because if you go to a streamer, it, it's difficult to really see any promo materials. I mean, I think Netflix has had this challenge probably, you know, for yeah. most of their theatrical experience. Besides Sunset Boulevard, of, I don't see anything that's consistent. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. It's like, if you're, in, if you're in LA, and for those of you who've never been to LA, it's very much, that's, it's like a billboard central. It's like, you see billboards like every other block. And it's so much that, you know, a lot of, it, it's part of the whole process and, and sort of the mix of marketing assets that you have at your disposal. And what are you going to do when you don't have, I mean, the TV spot has been dying, but it's still a cornerstone of sort of announcing when your release is coming up. And I know Netflix has played with sort of the TV promo game, but it's tough to say that that's been success. So it, it's interesting to me because so much of what Disney has done so well over the course of a lot of their theatrical campaigns and uh, whatnot is that there is just this, it's a universal message across all channels Yeah, and they're able to hit you wherever you are. I mean, I mean, most of you can probably think back to the Avengers campaign and just, it was everywhere. You couldn't turn an eye, you walk into Walmart and you're just bombarded with it. Turn on your TV and you're just bombarded with it. You, you watch any show and there's some sort of cross promotional thing happening and that's what they're really great at. And it's interesting with the closing of some of the linear channels, um, I think it's going to be a challenge for them to sort of really find, you know, where their audience is. And I know a lot of the studios are struggling now with, in terms of they're building these massive data teams to figure out how we can reach our audience because so much of the yeah. model is shifted. And, and, the, and the, where everyone's eyeballs are instead of TikTok. <clears throat> yeah. Like where no one's watching YouTube anymore. I mean, yeah. except for besides the channel that we're producing right now, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> uh, which I guess isn't necessarily true. I, I've heard recently 15% of all internet traffic goes across YouTube. So YouTube has yeah. plenty of viewers. But yeah. uh, the eyeballs that they're trying to reach, it's hard to get inside of some of that content anymore, especially the user-based content. Yeah. Um, I also feel just feel like Hollywood is breaking in, in those ways too because the – all of it seems to connect, right? So when you when you lose the when you go SVOD strictly, um, you lose the promo promo space. So um, now those service industries are shifting and moving. Um, yeah. We don't have the airtime anymore, so agencies are breaking their their ability to uh, put their content on there. The brands, um, a lot of the commercial time that we're we've become so accustomed to, mm -hmm. and there's sort of the value of the talent also doesn't doesn't play anymore, right? If I have uh, people watching SVOD and, um, and TikTok and, and all these OTT kind of ideas, then that character, the Jennifer Aniston, doesn't really have a play anymore to fill, to fill in the airtime gap to draw the yeah. attention in and get the eyeballs anymore. Yeah. Um, and then for the value of the talent, the value of the agencies even fall apart. You could just feel it crumbling in so many different areas. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, again, I think a lot of the way Hollywood is set up in a lot of ways, particularly within the studio system, is that every the, there's just millions of little pieces that sort of line up to the studio system and rely on the studio system and um, the distribution model to really support them. You know, and what I mean by that is, so to your point, you know, with 
promo time getting smaller and smaller and less opportunities, you have a lot of the, the you know, entertainment marketing agencies that are struggling to figure out a way how they survive. There are only so many streamers to go around. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the bigger trailer houses are suffering. I've been talking to an editorial colleague of mine who works at one of the bigger name shops, and he said it's just like, it's boom or bust. Like one minute they start cutting on a movie, and then they get a phone call and say, stop, we're not sure when this is coming out. We don't know where we're going to promote it. Um, yeah. So it, it's, it's... And I think I might have mentioned last week where uh, a former colleague of mine at, at Trailer Park uh, went off to another place. They shuttered their doors through COVID. Yeah. Like there is just nothing to make. So, and they can't keep up with the high price of editors and whatever. Yeah, they can't keep up with the high price and studios are, you know, pulling back on the budgets because they're obviously not releasing money. So that revenue stream is, is drying up. But also, you know, look at sort of the other ancillary markets that sort of rely on the studio system. You've got, you know, the marketing agencies, as we mentioned, you've got consultants, you've got uh, publicists, you've got PR reps, you know, and, you know, even some of the bigger talent agencies, like a big news last, the end of last week was that CAA, which is known in town as sort of like, you know, if you've ever been to their building on Avenue of the Stars, it's like the Death Star, um, you know, it, they were, they laid off 90 people and they furloughed 270 plus. Yeah. I mean, it really is show it, it's it, it's really starting to show that there's just a, a seismic shift happening in the industry in terms of what what everyone's role is going to be when sort of all the dust settles because the interesting thing is the agencies over the course of the last i would say 10 years or so you know have really become a lot of the gatekeepers in terms of talent um when i was interning when i started my career at a for the producer at sony you know, they drilled into me, you cannot take a script unless it comes from an agent or a manager or a rep. Like you can't take a script from some John Q public off the street. There were legal reasons for it, obviously, but obviously it was in the interest of a lot of the agencies to be the gatekeepers. Yeah. And when I moved into development at New Line Cinema, it was sort of like, you know, I would just wait for scripts to pile up on my desk from the agencies. So for me, some, some of the more interesting aspects of it are sort of, well, what does this mean in terms of studio development execs? Are they going to have to start doing a lot more of the finding the original stories, finding the talent, finding the new directors, and not just waiting for everything to sort of plop on their desk? And for us, it's sort of content, you know, developers. I think this is an opportunity because, you know, there is going to be sort of a widening of the gate per se, which I think is a, a good thing. Uh, and obviously, I don't begrudge anyone losing their livelihood. I, I, I don't want that at all. I mean, there's so many people, good people in Hollywood that, you know, are going to be adversely affected by this. But at the same time, I think this is sort of like it's been building for a long time. And I think COVID just sort of like. Yeah, opened, showed the weakness. Yeah. You know, showed all the cracks and have just exploited it. And now it's just sort of starting to crumble. And I think the question a lot of people are asking is, you know, for those of you who follow the business of the industry on a day-to-day, -day, there's the whole strike with the WGA and the agencies in terms of the whole concern about packaging. And a couple of the agencies have started to negotiate, but at the same time, even before COVID hit and everything locked down and production was shut down, there were still TV shows being produced. So even, yeah. though, the even though the writers had technically fired their agents, there were still shows being produced. Yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's such a different dynamic nowadays, isn't it? Where 
And by the way, we just took a major shift. We should uh, let our audience just take a deep breath because I think we yeah, just sorry. from the deep end <laughs> out to the, the, the deep ocean. Uh, yes, the yes. Back Ray me in, Tim. Ray me in. That's what you're good at. <laughs> no, it's, it's all fair because uh, we really are kind of just um, comprehending all that's shifting at one time. Yeah. And uh, clearly COVID has, has had its impact because of the, the viewing audience has changed. Um, but, and, but this has been going on for, for longer than that. You know, the yeah. Disney Fox acquisition was way before COVID. So we know that that's not just a reactionary uh, yeah. process. Um, but yeah, to your point that, so the, so CAA dropping agents, mm -hmm. by the way, like, let's just be honest, like the overhead of an agency is very little. It's just human beings making, making deals. It's not like they're yeah. making widgets and you need a factory. No. So if there are transactions taking place, agents are getting paid. The fact mm -hmm. that they dropped um, 90, did you say 90 other agents and 200 people? I believe it was about 90 and they furloughed about 275, which is, I think a bulk of them were, were assistants. Yeah, so, so that's like the equivalent of, of looking at the economy and measuring housing starts, like to recognize yeah. that things are slowing down, that transactions aren't taking place. If the agents have to be let go, there's no money exchanging hand. So, you know, that's, that's the big indicator there. That's the, that's the um, red flag there is, well, where are those transactions? If the agents aren't doing it, do they exist at all? Do they completely disappear or do they move somewhere else? Um, so to, to pivot to the next thing you're talking about really is the idea of like, yeah, where did they go? Because if the, if the WGA strike doesn't affect the television content being produced, mm -hmm. I think it's really kind of showing the marketplace that the independent developers are coming out of the woodwork. Yeah. Like I don't need an agent to get something distributed anymore, right? You and I can put a team together um, very easily, especially in a COVID environment where people yeah. are working from home anyway, content is so simple. You get, get a, get a film star with his own camera turned on talking like that's content anymore. So clearly that leverage, um, where the agencies, uh, would, would play where you would need the WGA to be part of it. Something has taken place. I yeah. think it's good news because I'm in the content making game and yeah. I don't want all the gatekeepers to tell me no. Um, but that shift is real and we have to be able to understand it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. I think this is, again, I think this is good news in a lot of ways. I think a lot of what's happening in the industry has built up over years upon years. And, you know, I'm a big believer in the phrase innovate or die. And obviously I have a deep love and cherishment for the entertainment industry in general. I've been in it for, as I said, top of this 15 plus years. And I really want to see it succeed and change and evolve. And I think that's a lot of what you're seeing right now. You're seeing a lot of the changes that have been discussed for years upon years, but you know, and sort of in an industry that's been around for so long and it's in its inability to innovate. Um, I think, I think it's, this has really helped force the issue in a lot of ways. And I do think it's, it is, it is in the, in the long run, it's good news. I think there's going to be a lot of shocks and yeah, I think, that's going to be a bit of a tough slog to get through. But I think for the most part, overall, I think it's good. I think it's good for the audience. Um, you know, they're going to get a lot more content. They're going to be a lot, they're going to be entertained. I think it's great for the storytellers, people who love storytelling. Yeah. Um, I'm really I do, don't you feel like it has shifted a little bit? I'd love to say like a, 
obviously we're we're not on the analyst side of the SVOD game and what these uh, companies are doing. They could probably read the tea leaves very easily in the cable market, which someday we should talk about the, the outcome of Comcast. Because um, from your old office building, to see those gigantic brand new Comcast buildings being built in downtown Philly and to know yeah. the cable disruption is taking place, I'm right. very concerned about I'm very concerned about their mortgage. Yeah. Um, but we'll talk about that later. Um, the uh, that double down to SVOD and what that really means. I almost feel like we've shifted way to insular now, um, and I'm not gaining that ability to find loose content. Um, I kind of miss the days of like, um, I'll say like the DJ who would introduce the songs to you, right? So of course the downside is that we point out there's a gatekeeper telling telling the DJ what songs to play, but I would yeah. never heard the new song if unless someone introduced it to me. Now I feel like a lot of that's um, being played out only on social media, which keep people in their echo echo chambers too much, um, and that general broadcast or that. Uh, overall pop culture feeling is being uh, dropped out of some of these um, traditional uh, film and TV. Yeah. It's, it, it's funny. I, I, I was just about to say like, I long for the, cause I was my I'm up here in, on the coast of Maine, which, you know, is a beautiful place in the country. Um, and, you know, we, we, we don't have TV here, so it's very sort of yeah, disconnected from the day to day but I was having a conversation with my wife and mother-in-law and I was just sort of going through some of the eighties and nineties hits and they're just so memorable, like field of dreams and yeah. Ferris Bueller. I just saw that Ferris with my kids. Bueller, you know, all these, and that were just sort of, and that defined a lot of my like ET and all top gun and all these movies that sort of just defined my childhood. And I think to myself how fortunate I was to grow up in that era when films really were such a cultural icon. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the reason why we've sort of lost a little bit of that is because, to your point, the social media of it and just the excess of content. While it may be a blessing that we have so many opportunities, at the same time, are we losing that sense of like a community that can sort of a film that can sort of drive all of us together that we can talk about? I mean, the unending debate about Avatar and whether or not its cultural relevance will stand the test of time it, it, I think it's very relevant to this this discussion simply because it was the highest grossing movie until Avatar knocked, I'm sorry, until Avengers knocked it off the, the, the pedestal. But did anybody really talk about Avatar? Yeah, interesting, right? Yeah. Was it really a cultural icon like an E.T.? I mean, think about the last time you quoted a movie. The last movie yeah. I quoted that was really quotable in my mind was Jerry Maguire. That was really <laughs> that movie that everybody sort of show me the money, you complete me, um, you know, all those lines. And I, I don't know if that does, it doesn't happen as much anymore. I mean, maybe it's, again, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm a little on the older side. Um, you know, I'm not growing up in this era and maybe there are lines that kids replay play to themselves. I, I don't know, but it doesn't feel like that exists. And that to me is, is definitely something you know, I long to see again in the industry and yeah. maybe, maybe having sort of that, um, a sort of a lean towards allowing more storytelling, maybe we'll bring us back to that. But again, you know, to your point, maybe it's an embarrassment of riches in terms of the number of content we have. Yeah, I think it, uh, in not only just in film and television as well. Um, uh, I was at a, a event this, 
this last Saturday night with a, just a couple of friends of ours. And we were talking about just the WWF. I mean, we yeah. could name almost all the wrestlers, the words that they say, the goofy <laughs> things, certain highlights. Um, obviously that's just like cheesy, stupid television, but it was a, like it had a pop culture attachment to it. Yeah. And um, pop culture is, I think is what's changing. And yeah. I think that's, what's changing a lot of our consuming of content and what's breaking Hollywood in a lot of ways. It's moving pieces around that we're not used to. And we're looking for that. Now we use the word viral, right? We're looking for something that just gets a ton, ton of viewers so that YouTube or Facebook can attach an ad to it. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't seem to have that same cultural relevance to it. Um, and I also think the irresponsibility of the cable news networks that are just um, constantly bombarding with one message 24 hours a day and yeah. not adding any flavor or understanding or even just breaking up news with anything else. Uh, feels very irresponsible with airtime and people's time um, yeah. of what they're able to consume. I agree. Um, we can get into way too many topics. In a <laughs> well, let's like I said, you're rain me in every now and then. I get, I get, I, I love it. <laughs> you got to pull me in every now and then. <laughs> but uh, that's just our takeaway today, right? Let's just kind of um, wrap up a takeaway today. What I'm hearing is, is that um, we can see the shift taking place. Uh, and to me, the obvious one I'd point back to is the CAA layoff. Um, it just shows that the transactions are moving. They're very different in form. Um, yeah. I have another article we could talk about some um, uh, next week about how uh, the agencies themselves are losing even the client lead. The client managers aren't necessary anymore because um, that client management part of it, of the experience is not necessary right. when it comes to promoting, putting commercials out there, uh, getting yep. your brand out there anymore. Yep. So those, that lack of transaction or the movement of those transactions straight to consumer and in an SVOD model um, really is kind of changing things. And yep. for better or worse, the gatekeepers are moving um, and possibly getting smaller. Um, but for content makers, it feels like the doors are more, more open. Yep. Agree. That's it. That's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah, I, agree. I mean, I, again, it's, I, I, it, it's so interesting to see. I mean, I, I know I started at the top of this with students. It's great. We live in such a boring industry, but it's just the constant shifting and changing of where things are moving is it's, it's exciting. I, I really, I really think that, you know, as someone who has been on the inside of the big studio system and the frustrations that build up from, you know, doing things the same way over and over again, the definition of insanity, as they say, and, and not really looking for change, for me, this is an exciting time. The changes that, you know, I've worked with a lot of wonderful people at my time at Fox, but we all just used to bemoan, like, why do we keep doing things exactly the same as they've done before? Yeah. Um, the, the going joke is like, okay, well, we have a movie that's very similar to this movie. So let's get that movie's campaign and just mimic what they did. Well, I mean, come on, like, that's not, <laughs> that's not really original thinking there. And it, it's frustrating. And I think the fact that now this is all happening and everything that's sort of in our little side conversations in our offices about why are we doing it this way? It's finally, like, people are like, okay, wait, maybe we shouldn't be doing this way. Maybe there's a better way to do this. Maybe we need to look at the models and sort of figure out a better way to make a product that's really going to touch people in a different way than, you know, just sort of, as you said, the 24 hour news cycle where people just get desanitized and they don't feel anything anymore. Yeah. It's crazy. 
Well, you asked for it, Keith, you got it. Things are breaking. And that's why we do Hollywood Breaks on every Friday morning so we can process the things that we've heard and the things we, we want to talk about. But also yep. the, talk about the thing we love most, which is uh, being in the content game, working in Hollywood, um, loving the people that we, the creative people that we get to work with every day. So um, I agree. Hey, it's good to see you this week. Um, if you too. love what you love what we see here, make sure that you are subscribing to us. We're going to make content every Friday until we run out of it, which as you can tell, is going to be weeks and weeks and years and years from now. <laughs> um, and then next couple of coming weeks, we're going to invite some special guests alongside us. Some other content yeah, makers yeah. get their sense yeah. of what they hear and see. Uh, so make sure you subscribe to us in this channel so we can um, be part of your weekly consuming of content. Also, give us that movie quote that Keith challenged us with. What is the movie quote, the last one you've heard? Jerry, Jerry Maguire's Keith's uh, Show Me the Money. Um, to me, I have Ghostbusters stuck in my mind, but I know that is way about the last uh, big quote of a Ooh, movie. What, what's your, okay, before we go, what's your favorite from Ghostbusters? Because there are a lot uh, of good We came, we saw, we kicked some ass. I love that when he walked in. <laughs> yeah, the old Caesar line. <laughs> he walks in. Oh, wait, no, is it? We came, we saw, we kicked its ass. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. We used to quote, I mean, literally, we quote movies. I could, we could do a whole podcast on, we could just go through movie quotes. I could do that all. Yeah, day. sure. Oh, yeah, easily. We should just get a panel of people quoting movies. Uh, so, yeah. share your movie quote. Uh, if you like what you hear, tell your friends about it. And until next week, I'm Tim Thompson. This is Keith Rao, and this is Hollywood Break. Wow, good to see you guys. Take care. <laughs>